have us jump right in at Acts 9. Now, we're talking about in this 26th verse, it says that when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, remember, Paul's not yet Saul. We're going to talk about that later in the coming weeks, why his name got changed, how it got changed, what it kind of meant. But right now, he has been someone, if you recall, who has been um, three years earlier, prior to this moment, he had this astonishing confrontation on the road to Damascus, he said, with the resurrected Christ. He had been the preeminent opponent of the way of Jesus. He did more than dislike. He absolutely, utterly despised the followers of the way, this way of the Nazarene. Again, the, the followers of Jesus were part of, part, still part of the larger Jewish community, and the early church was all Jewish. And Saul saw that as a problem. He was a Pharisee. He had been trained in the, rigorously um, in the ways, in the laws of the people, and he just felt like they were a corruptive influence that needed to be eradicated. And so he, he, he pledged himself to destroying that movement. And on his way to Damascus, he has this moment, we talked about it, where he's, you know, he's blinded and he asks, who are you, Lord? And I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And it's this astonishing exchange that occurs, turns his life upside down. Three years later, he's now coming back to Jerusalem. He had left with a contingent of soldiers to arrest these followers, break up families, put people in prison. He had blood on his hands. Now he's coming back to the very place where he had left, but a much different man. For Saul now was someone who had committed himself to Christ for three years in relative, although not complete isolation. He had created a kind of new understanding of it and a worldview built around the reality of Jesus. And we know that actually he was so convinced of Christ and so, so in his own way radical that when he ended up coming back and re-engaging in the, in the society, that he goes to Damascus, the place that he had left. And when he gets there, he gets people so mad at him that they want, they're plotting to kill him. And the, and the believers that he had ultimately gone there first to hunt down actually have to let him out of a hole in a wall in a big, large basket just to get him out safely out of the city. And he ends up going back down to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem now, for the first time in three years, he's coming back to the place where he had been trained, where he had, um, he, he knew the smells of the city. I mean, even now, if you, could, if you, if you ever had a chance to, to be in, in Israel and Jerusalem, uh, there's something about walking those streets that just take us back to the time of Christ. You can feel the history. You can smell it in some ways. It's just everywhere. I have no question that Saul was walking through the very places that he had known that were very familiar to him. But now he was a much different man. In fact, his intention in coming back to the city was actually not to reacquaint himself with his former associates. Remember, he had been an up-and-comer, a very significant player. Uh, he was someone who had been marked as a real leader, trained under the best teacher of the day, Gamaliel, the, the grandson of Hillel. I mean, this, we're talking about high level, a man of great intellect, pedigree, you know, from the you know, tribe Benjamin, you know, a Hebrew of Hebrew, circumcised on the eighth day, uh, uh, pertaining to the law. I honored it meticulously, he said. I mean, a man completely sold out to the cause. He comes back now, though, a very different man. He wants to, what we're told here, actually, in this 26th verse, is that now as a believer in Jesus, he actually wants to meet with the believers in Jerusalem. It says that he tried to meet with the believers. Look at that, verse 26. But they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Everybody, people, the rumors were still out. There was persecution going on. And people basically said, you know what? Uh, the doors were closing in his face. 
He wasn't being welcomed in. I mean, maybe he thought that when he got there, people were going to realize that he had changed. And, and to his chagrin, status, maybe he rationalizes it, and he said, you know what? That's what I get. After what I've done to these people, I don't blame them. They don't want anything to do with me. But he was a changed man. And he, it was really, for him, actually it was a big deal because we know from the book of Galatians that he actually wanted to meet with the apostles, especially Peter, James, the brother of Jesus as well, that there was important for him because he remember, he had never actually met Jesus in his earthly ministry. The disciples had been groomed under him. They had, they had lived with him. They had walked with him. They had ate with him, watched him do things. They, you know, they had ministered on his behalf. They had, they, they had been friends with Jesus as well as his followers. And they had watched the horror of the cross they had experienced it all, and then the glory of the resurrection. And, and you know, Paul, he had seen the, the, the glorious resurrected Jesus, but he had never actually had the interactions that they had, and he wanted to talk to them. He wanted to, to get, you know, their input and, and share what he had learned, what they had learned, and, and yet all the doors were being shut. And perhaps part of them may have even said, you know what, maybe this isn't supposed to happen. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus just wants me to go on my own. I go my way, they go their way, and that's that. I get it. They don't want me. They don't want me. They're afraid of me. They don't believe in me. And it was in that moment that a really important and kind man stepped forward to be his sponsor. He's one of the underappreciated figures in the early church. He's a man named Barnabas. We read about him right here. It says, then Barnabas brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul had seen the Lord. Basically, he puts his reputation on the line, and he becomes a bridge. And he says, look, what's happened to this man is real and genuine. I'm willing to vouch for him. It says that he also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And we know a few things about Barnabas. If you study his, him, and again, he's often diminished because he, he becomes Paul's teammate and partner and part of the team later on. And Barnabas, compared to the impact of of Saul and, and Paul down the line, it's like, you know, Paul is this, you could suggest and argue legitimately that, that Paul becomes the single most influential follower of Jesus this world has ever known. Barnabas is, comparatively speaking, is, is not anything at the level of impact that, 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 that Paul is going to have, right? It's, He's almost over, over, sort of overwhelmed by him, overshadowed by him. But you know what? In the scripture, in the early church, he was actually a very important leader. And he's also portrayed in a very unique way. We were told something about this man. We're told that he's essentially a man of tremendous character and depth, that he's a wealthy man, that he's a recognized leader in the early church. They refer to him actually as an apostle, even though he wasn't one of the original disciples. He's given a place of great privilege and respect we know the other thing about him that stands out is that he had this Gregorious personality, that he's a happy man, and that he's noted for his encouragement. In fact, that his name literally means one who encourages. He evidently was someone of some means and noted for his generosity because when the church was just getting started, I think it's just good for us to know these, these things about how the church begins. When the church was just getting started, Barnabas was one of the key people who donated a significant asset that he had. In fact, we read about this. If you read in, in Acts 4 earlier on, also we're told something else. We're told his real name wasn't Barnabas. It was Joseph. They gave him the nickname of Barnabas because Barnabas means one who encourages or son of encouragement. 
he was such an evidently an encouraging person that they gave him the nickname Barnabas. But his real name was Joseph. In this situation, we see that he was from Cyprus, that he had also owned a piece of land and sold that land and gave that money to the early church to help get it, get it going. So he's a very giving man. But one of the keys here is that, I mean, go back to the account, is that it says that what Barnabas, when he finds out that Paul basically, Saul is basically being rejected, he says, I'm going to bring you to them. I'm going to, um, I'm going to affirm what has happened in your life. I'm going to sponsor you because I believe in you. And then we're told here that he, Saul stays then with the apostles. Look at that, verse 28. And he went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So all of a sudden, Saul starts to assert himself. And in fact, he gets into a debate with some of his former associates, the Greek-speaking Jews. And he gets them so mad that now they try to do to him what he had been part of doing to a man named Stephen. They try to murder him. And it's such a real threat that it says that when the believers heard about this, look what they did. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. I'm going to put up a map again real quick because, again, it's really good to know that these are real-life places and they're very much in the news today, certain this region. Look at where Jerusalem is in relation to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Jerusalem, it says that they take Saul. They say, you know what? You can't stay here. They are, people are so upset with you. And evidently, there was something about the way that he was going at this, uh, not be unrelenting. The, the approach that the apostles had taken contrasted somewhat with what, what Saul was doing because Saul was extremely aggressive in his, in his conviction that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of the living God. And he, and, but he is in so much trouble that they say, you can't stay here. You, 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 you're going to get out of here. So they take him and they say, you're going to go up to Caesarea and we're going to put you on a ship and we're going to send you up to, you see it, Tarsus. Tarsus is in modern day Turkey. Tarsus is a really interesting place because Tarsus is a very sophisticated, uh, at that day it was a very sophisticated city. By the way, that was where, where Saul grew up. His most basic shaping occurs in, this is important, it occurs in an urban environment. And you contrast that with some of the disciples who, for the most part, their shaping and formation occurs, and also, by the way, Jesus lives, there, lives in the north as well, occurs in the relative rural obscurity of the Galilee, which is very different than what, where Paul, Saul emerges. The disciples, for the most part, when they would come to Jerusalem, that was the, one of the biggest exposures they would have to an urban city environment, but their primary you know, life was lived out in, in, in somewhat rural environments. In fact, they were called, the Galileans were called northerners, right? And somewhat looked down on by the southerners in the south where Jerusalem is. And that's one of the reasons why one of the disciples said early on, can any good thing come from Galilee, Nazareth, when they were talking about where Jesus was coming from? It was not the place where the prophet was supposed to come from. But here's a, this is an important detail. Saul grows up. Now, even though he's trained in Jerusalem in his, you know, 30s, we may assume, and perhaps a little bit earlier than that, his formation occurs in an interesting environment where he is exposed to a lot of different worldviews. It's particularly, even though his family is utterly committed to the way of the Hebrews, committed to the, to the testament of Scripture, um, meticulously devoted to honoring God of the Old Testament and committed to his religion completely, um, there was still, nonetheless, an interaction that he had on a regular basis with a lot of the Gentile community, the non-Jewish community, Greeks, you know, merchants, Persian merchants, 
Roman soldiers. Everybody was converging a lot in Tarsus. He, he was fluent in Greek, which was the English of their day. He, spoke, he probably had familiarity, familiarity with Latin. He spoke Hebrew and probably Aramaic as well. He was someone who came from a family that had been very successful and therefore had attained something that was uncommon, Roman citizenship as a Jew. And it was a citizenship that he inherited from his father, and therefore it gave him a unique access at one of the most unique times in the history of the world. Because you've got to remember, up until this point, there, it, was, it would have been very difficult to, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the, to the world. By the time Paul is emerging, the world, as the, that known world, is, is essentially under what is called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that was enforced by Rome's military presence. Essentially, they controlled everything, even in Jerusalem. That's why when Jesus is crucified, the, the Sanhedrin cannot just do it on their own. They have to go to Pilate because Rome has the ultimate authority. That's why they have to pay taxes, which was a point of controversy. When, when they asked Jesus, who should, should we pay our taxes? He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But it was because Rome ruled. And ruled, Rome ruled with an iron fist. There was peace, but it was an enforced peace. But what that also meant is that Rome has set forth for the first time these amazing roads and systems of transportation. Uh, what had previously been unsafe travel was now safe. You could go places. Uh, you, could, you, could, you could travel to, to places, regions that before would have been extremely dangerous. But, but be part of what had happened is it was a unique time in history, and Paul was a unique man. Because of his training, he essentially had the ability to be bicultural. He was completely familiar, trained at the highest levels in the scriptures and the ways of the Jewish people. At the same time, he had this ability to access non-Jewish believers, our people, people. He understood their ways, their language. He had been around it. He knew how to speak it. And as a result, he felt comfortable. And remember when he is called, he's told two things. One, you're, I'm going to show you how much things you're going to suffer for me. And then two, you're going to have a unique assignment in this world to bear my name before Gentiles and before kings. So he was unique. Now, what we're told... After he goes home and he's, he's there in Tarsus, the last we hear of him, just you, you need to leave. Go back to your place that you have your family. It says that something happened, though, in the church. Just stay with me on this, you guys. Something unique happens. Up until this point, the followers of Jesus, this is not always known, were pretty much exclusively Jewish. All the disciples were Jewish. Um, the community itself was almost considered themselves part of the larger church of Jerusalem. They had been told to share this good news with everyone, all the world, Samaritans and Gentiles, but they, for the most part, had been very parochial, had been very locked in. Um, it hadn't really gone outside of the culture. And then something happens that catches everybody off guard. We read about it here in Acts 11, verse 20. Look at it, sing your hand out as well. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene, what happened is they began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus, and the power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles actually believed, turned to the Lord, and then it catches everybody off guard. And when the church at Jerusalem hears about what has happened, who do they send? They send Barnabas, there he is, to Antioch. Now, where is Antioch? Okay, just one more time. Antioch is in the north. 
You can see where it is. Antioch of Syria, one of the great cities of the Roman Empire, the gate city of the east. A lot, a center, a very complex environment for their day. And it's shockingly, it's in Antioch that all of a sudden, for the first time, because there have been Gentiles who had already been converted to the Jewish religion that had participated and received Christ. But no, no, it had not happened that just Gentiles, period, non-Jewish people, just opening up their heart to Jesus. That hadn't happened. Partly because no one was, was do, extending the word, but they were caught off guard by it. And they end up saying, we got to send Barnabas down up to Antioch to just double check what's happening there. We're hearing about this. It says, when he arrived, he saw evidence of God's blessing. He was filled with joy. Then he did what he did, he did best. He encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Then we're told this about Barnabas. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a man strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. But then he had an idea. You know what? I should get Saul. I think, for one, he was called to, to take this message to the Gentiles. At least that's what he told me. And secondly, he understands them. I'm going to get him. I'm going to find him. So he goes back up from Antioch. And by the way, this is at a time when you don't know. You know what? Think about this. Well, now we might just, how you doing, right? Well, even a phone, right? Hey, so I'm going to be shooting over, you know? You did, in those days, it was like when you went to go look for someone, you had no idea. One, you didn't know. They could be, they could be gone for all you know. You, you, if, you did, if you had to do it on the moment, you just kind of went. You took a tra transportation was long. It was arduous. It was usually by foot, sometimes by beast, and sometimes by ship, but it wasn't quick. And as a result, when you went somewhere to find someone, you didn't always know if you were going to find the person you were looking for. But, they, but what Barnabas says is, you know what, I'm going to go find Saul, and then I'm going to get him, and I'm going to bring him down with me to back down to Antioch, and I'm going to let him, as a teammate of mine, teach these new Gentile believers about the ways of Christ and how it all fits into the scriptures. I know Saul can do it, and that's what he does. You know what the keys is then? Barnabas really is the first person to really, because he believes, it basically all, they become a great team, and it all starts because, why? Barnabas takes a relational risk with Saul when no one else would. And out of that, so much good comes. And you know, I was thinking about a, about a poem I had read um, that I loved. It, it is the most, by, by most estimations, the most popular Christian poem that has ever been written. It could be debated. There might be a few others, but certainly one of the most highly regarded, sophisticated poetry, at least, is a poem we call The Hound of Heaven. And The Hound of Heaven was written by a man named Francis Thompson in the 1800s. What makes it unique, and again, it's about how God gets on our trail and won't let us go, how the grace of the Lord pursues us, how he follows us, even through the the worst of things, he stays on my trail. You can't ultimately run away from God. But Thompson, here's the deal. He had been an opium addict. And we know a little bit about, and I said, I don't know about it. We know a little bit about his story. He was a very sensitive young man, grew up in a kind of a Catholic home, son of a, his, of a, of a doctor. His dad was a physician. His father was a physician. Uh, he had tried to go, he was actually very sensitive. He had tried to go into the priesthood, he got rejected. Uh, he tried to join the military, he got rejected. Made a decision and then he would follow in. He kind of had this very shy, sensitive personality and um, a little bit of nervousness as well. But he loved literature and he loved poetry. 
And he told his father and his mother that he was going to train to become a doctor, just like, like the family had really wanted him to do so, and that he was going to start training. But his mother knew that he had a love for literature, so periodically she would give him books. She didn't realize that in, with all the best intentions, she would do something that would radically alter his life. She gave him as a gift a book that was somewhat popular at the time, that has a name that wouldn't initially connect with us. It was called Confessions of an Opium Eater, which would be another way of saying Confessions of a Drug Addict. It was written by a man named De Quincey, and it kind of was controversial because it somewhat glorified the experience of taking the drug. The reason it was such a tragedy, unintentional one, is that Thompson reads the book and is so mesmerized by it that he starts taking opium himself and becomes a total addict to such a degree that he ends up having a break with his father and he leaves Manchester and he says, I'm going to London. In London, he completely falls apart. He, is, he, is an, uh, he loses the weight, he's pale, he's amazing. He's sleeping in a gutter. Uh, he's the picture of someone who's in the process of dying. He's that bad, a total opium addict. He's been working, he works to just pay for his addiction. And he's slowly decaying to a point where he's just about ready, you know, he doesn't have much left. His body's literally withering away. But he still has a brilliance about him. And one day he's reading in a publication, a magazine, and he says, you know, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna just submit some of my poetry. And so he scribbles some things out, he writes some things out. And he gets an envelope, it was a smudged old envelope. He doesn't even have an address to put on it as his house or a place where it can be. He just puts post office Charing Cross as a return address, which is just like a region, like someone saying, you know, post office mission district. No name, nothing. Sends them into the editor. The editor, a guy named Wilfred Maynell. He is a respected, he's a, he's a follower of the Lord. Um, he has a, a publication. Uh, his wife, Alice, is a highly regarded poet herself. Um, the, the letter is addressed to him. He gets it. It's dirty. It's kind of crinkled up. He tosses it aside on the desk. He doesn't look at it for six months. He, doesn't even, he had forgotten about it. But as he's cleaning his desk out, he pulls it back out, and he opens it up, and he starts to read it. And he's shocked at the quality, the subtlety, the, the writing, the poetry. And he immediately tries to find this, this man. He, he, again, he was, he, so what he ends up doing is they end up publishing the poem in the papers in the hopes that maybe the person who wrote it will say, hey, I wrote that. Well, he does. And through a series of contests, eventually they find him and they're shocked at what they see because he's essentially a total addict. He's, he's, he's literally in the process of dying. He's just, his clothes are tattered. And, they have to, and in that moment, they have to make a decision. What are they going to do? They had to decide. And what they did is they said, you know what? We're going to pay your opium debts. We're going to take you because we recognize something special about you, and we're going to take you, and we're going to, we're going to push you in what, they would, what we would call a rehab center. It was in a, a hospital in a monastery. And we're going to, you're going to get you cleaned up. 
And then we want you to publish things. And they did, and they, they became, and not only did, they, well, did they do that, become a sponsor, but he became his friend. And out of that came the hound of heaven. A few years later, he writes the hound of heaven. And the hound of heaven, again, is, in fact, it's so good. Now, I don't, I'm not an expert on poetry, but I know when it's, something's good, that catches me. And so I asked him, can you put at least the opening stanza up for everybody to get a, to get a look at together? So here it goes. This is what he writes. I fled him. I fled him down. Oh, I, I, I mean, absolutely. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I'm run, running from God. I'm running from God. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways, the, the maze of my mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And in a running laughter up this did hopes I sped and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fear from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. And he starts into it. God was on my trail in every place. And ultimately, he declares, he did not let me go. His grace chased me down. It's a wonderful moment. And again, I look at that and I go, wow, in the same way, it, they were willing to take a risk on this man. They had a, it ends up becoming a poem that has blessed so many people. But somebody decided to take a risk. In the same way that Barnabas decided to take a risk. And it got me thinking, I'll just leave us with these like, quick little ending, ending thoughts just to sort of play around with in our mind as we go into the rest of the week. I hope it'll show up in some way relationally. But I thought about it. It really does remind us, number one, you guys, that it is so important to invest in people and to be willing to take a relational risk. And I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm not talking about being foolish. Listen, there are some relationships that are absolutely toxic. And we're not strong enough. To, it, it, it would not be wise. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about, though, is that there are times when the Lord really does want us to go the extra mile and to believe for somebody. Now, some of us, I know, because I've talked to some, it's really hard sometimes when you want to see someone break through and they are their own worst enemy and they keep falling back into stuff. You know, one of the interesting things about Wilfred Maynell and Francis Thompson is that Thompson actually does struggle a little bit down the years. He certainly dies earlier than he probably should have. But he's loved and nurtured and and always kept going, and he has a friend who believes in him and calls forth faith in him. And I think that there are some times where, listen, to take a reason it's a risk is that sometimes believing in people and believing in what God and being with them and supporting them and encouraging them, sometimes we expose ourselves to being disappointed. And our hearts can get broken when we want something worse than the person who's in trouble wants it. That's really hard. But People, listen, people have invested into us. None of us are self-made. Somebody was a good example. Somebody encouraged us in a downtime. Somebody was a blessing to us. Somebody taught us something about God. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have a heart that's open to him. I, I can't tell you how many people I meet who've been, who come to San Francisco running away from God, but somebody back home has been praying for them. And shockingly, the hound of heaven finally, relentlessly, on their trail, catches up. And grace comes. And you know what I've seen sometimes? It's true. Sometimes people fall and disappoint us, fall, disappoint. But you know what? 
there is a, once in a while, and maybe more than a few times, people, get, people start to get it. And remember I always talk about the breakdown that leads, right? Remember I talk about the breakdown that leads to the breakthrough that leads to the breakout? It's, I've watched people get it. And on the work that was being done, it, it, it eventually paid off. Now, it doesn't always, but there are times where it does, and you just go, thank you, Lord. I said, what's happening? It's an amazing, it's a miracle. It's a blessing. I'm seeing it. I'm watching transformation in front of my eyes. But it wouldn't have happened if someone had not made the effort to stay with people. And sometimes the Lord is asking us to stay with people, to be the one. Secondly, right behind that, I was thinking about this as well. It's important then that you and I, 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 I want to be able to celebrate the encouragers in my life. And, I, and, I, you know, and we, should, we should be really thankful for people. By the way, what do you think of encouragement? What comes to mind? Is it, if you want to say, hey, could you define for me what encouragement is? Well, you know, it's kind of, it's making someone, it's comforting someone. It's making someone maybe feel better who's been feeling bad. I mean, what, how would we define? Do you know what the key? That, that would be okay. It would be a legitimate way of saying it. Making someone feel happier than they've been. But do you, do you realize, what is the root word in encouragement? Courage. Encouragement means to instill strength. At its core, it has to do with strengthening someone, inspiring one, someone not to quit, encouraging someone to get hopeful. It has to do with lifting. It has to do with believing. Encouragement. We all need it. We all need to be it. Barnabas is a great, he's a happy man who loves people. And he, that's part of the reason God uses him. And that's the way God shows up in his life is by using him to bless people to believe in people. He believes in Saul. And eventually it plays a play, brings out a harvest. He stays with him. And, that's what, and, and this leads me to the last, last thought here, which is this, that we should be thinking about our relational construction in life and, and trying to make sure that as we look, think about our friendships, periodically think about our relationships, think about our own strengths and weaknesses and what it would mean to have complementary friendships. You know, one of the things that we need to, because here's the deal. Paul Saul was so radically intense that Barnabas was an amazingly beautiful balance for him because he was an encourager, a people lover who believed. And, and it was a beautiful, you know what? We need, do you hear what I'm saying? There's wisdom here. It's, it's good to have friends who we think alike, but it's also good to have people in our lives who sometimes they're, their gifts and their, world, their way of experiencing life is different than ours. And, and that could be a tremendous strength to us. By the way, I'm going to say this as well. It's one of the reasons why it's really important for a church to take advantage of the fact that it's cross-generational. It's really good to be with people not just always like ourselves. If that is the... I get that as a primary, but it's really good for us it deepens us. It, it, it will it's a way of, of living life that is actually far more rich. Is to not simply be locked into a very narrow people group, but to sort of have a... The beauty of a church is it brings people together from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different age groups, life stages, and we get to be together. 
And we get to do it in a way that is life-giving and wholesome, and it invites us into relationships and friendships that would have come no other way because we share a common desire to honor Christ in our lives and to grow. And it produces a tremendous harvest. How good is that? It's the wisdom of God and the way he built things. I want us to be thinking about those things as we move forward. Think about the blessing. Think about the type of friend God wants us to be. Because everything that we desire, he wants us to be in some way. We want a blessing. I want someone who listens to me. I want someone who loves me. I want someone who, who can strengthen me. Can we be that for others too? By this, Jesus said, shall all men know that you are my disciples by the love that you show one to another. Let's pray. Lord, as we're here, we thank you for your words. Not only for the, the, just the, you know, the ability to review the historical reality of your scriptures and how your church has grown and emerged. That's a good thing, to increase our knowledge. But it's also good for us to remember that none of us are self-made. We're all products of others in you. You create us, but you sustain us. And a lot of times, the way you mediate your grace in life is through other people. I just really pray that we would have a vision to be that for others. I know we're busy. I know some of us feel like I've got nothing left on my plate to be able to give to anybody else. But Lord, help us at least reserve a piece to be able to offer up. Blessed are those who give. And I just pray, I pray that, Lord, help us to be a people who are expansive, who are growing, who are not narrow in our relationships, but have an expansiveness about life. We learn, we love, we represent your heart well. So I pray for your blessing. Bless our, our closing time. The, the final song, it's like our benediction, Lord, in our, in our giving time. May you be honored in it. We do it to the best of our abilities. We give you this praise. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.